Hey lovelies, before we get started, I want to remind you of all the different ways you can get your hands on one of my designs. Impact Fashion is a line of size-inclusive, modest clothing available in sizes 2 through 24. I personally design and pattern every single piece in the collection so that it is fitted to perfection and every single piece runs the same. That means that once you know your size, that is your size in every single piece. Pretty cool, no? You can shop the collection online at impactfashionnyc.com. Shipping is totally free in the U.S. and the return policy is, if I do say so myself, amazing. You have 30 days to make a decision and don't even have to pay return shipping or any sort of annoying restocking fee if you don't absolutely love what you've chosen. Impact Fashion can also be found at the address at American Dream Mall. The address is a curated, modest department store and definitely worth a visit if you are not an online shopping type of person. Also worth a visit if you're just a I like shopping kind of person. It's a very cool location. The American Dream Mall is located right next to the Meadowlands Sports Complex in New Jersey. And to get to the address, you're going to want to park in Lot C, Level 3. Make a left when you walk into the mall and you'll see the address on your right. My section that carries pieces from the Impact Fashion Collection is towards the back of the address. When you walk in, you're going to want to walk straight down the center aisle and make a left at Waterdale. I'm at the end of that row. I'm always happy to chat, whether that's to answer your sizing questions or just to get to know each other better. Find me on Instagram at impact.fashion.myc or on WhatsApp status at 516-953-9391. You can also email me. It's Rivky, R-I-V-K-Y, at impactfashionnyc.com. Enjoy the show. From Impact Fashion, it's Be Impactful, a show about the women making a difference in their own corners of the world. On today's show, I sit down with the executive director of Aura to discuss how her work has changed in the two years since Free Chava. We discuss a specific case happening now in Bergen County, the line between tough negotiator and get refuser, how this gets even tougher when you know people, and how using a get as a bargaining chip is never a good idea. Years ago, I interviewed Keshet Starr as part of a larger series on domestic violence and get abuse in the Orthodox community. On this time assessor, I wanted to have Keshet back on the show to discuss how being on the ground every day is a little bit different now in a post-free hobo world. Hi, Keshet. How are you doing today? Doing great. Thank you. Glad to be back. It is, it is really an honor to have you back. And I want to give a little bit of background to this conversation before we dive right in, because we have a lot to cover. Uh, two years ago, which is crazy to think that it was two years ago, um, there was a case of um, uh, of Free Chava that really went viral. And it opened up this conversation of a gunot in a way that it really had not been spoken about before. Um, and for anyone who doesn't know, the Jewish divorce process is a little bit, I guess, weird or strange in the way that... Um, there, there is a get, which is a Jewish, a Jewish divorce. And in the same way that in a civil court, you cannot divorce someone who does not want to be divorced, kind of both parties need to be in agreement. Jewish divorce works in a similar way in that both parties need to be in agreement. And there have been cases usually of men who drag out the divorce process to a point where they are considered get refusers. They are refusing to uh, continue with the divorce proceedings to give their wife a get. And they they are essentially chaining their wives to what to a dead marriage. That's those are the literal translations of the words of the, you know, kind of Hebrew words used. And what ends up happening is that you have these women trapped in marriages that are not, they're not marriages. Like they're not living together. They're not sleeping together. They, they don't have lives together, but she is unable to move on with her life. Um, this is abuse. This is domestic abuse. This, it is widely considered to be so. And these were kind of cases that, I mean, to my understanding, and Kesha, you can correct me if, if this is wrong, these were really kind of handled behind closed doors up until about two years ago when this case with Chava went crazy viral. Um, her her case just became very well known. I think it was also because it was such an obvious case that this was, there weren't really two sides to this story, I don't think. Um, or maybe it just hit the right nerve at the right time. I don't know. And it really opened up this conversation. And here on the Be Impactful podcast, what I chose to do at the time 
was to take a, a couple of steps back and talk about domestic violence, because we know that in cases of there is no such thing as a case of get refusal where there is not a history of domestic abuse. Um, it is a form of domestic abuse, so it doesn't happen in a vacuum. Um, and I chose to kind of go a little bit further upstream and talk about domestic abuse and domestic violence. And there was a four episode series that um, that I did at the time, and I'm going to link it all in the show notes talking about that topic. Um Keshet was one of um, the director of ORA, the Organization for the Resolution of Agunot, was one of my guests at the time. And we spoke about the halachic prenup in super intense detail. It's actually one of my favorite episodes that, that I've ever done, you should know, because it was super, super intense detail on something that I think a lot of people misunderstood. And we went through the halachic prenup, which is a legal prenup in like the same way that it'll be recognized in any court in New York State or wherever. Um, that outlines someone's halachic, someone's Jewish law obligation. And it's a great episode, and I recommend that you listen. But what I want to do today, Keshet, is talk about what's happened in the two years since. You know, in, in a couple of ways, Free Chava has kind of, you know, as most viral hits do, has kind of died off in, a, in, in some way. Chava herself still does not have a get. And... And, and I want, you know, what's your life been like the last two years? What have you been doing? What's, what's been going on on your end of this whole equation? And you've been involved in this work for a very long time before, you know, it was something that people that became very well known. Absolutely. It's been a very busy two years. I do think that, you know, these cases were more known in communities that were impacted by a specific case, but certainly outside the modern Orthodox community and in neighborhoods and communities where there weren't cases, this was news. And so I do think Free Chava really opened up that door. And I think one change that's been very powerful is that the idea of get refusal being a form of domestic abuse, that was kind of really considered a radical thought when that idea was first put out there. And I do feel like we're at a place where the mainstream perspective is that that is very much true, which is uh, some real progress. And in terms of what we've seen, definitely a lot of attention to the issue, in some cases, frustration that the um, the intensity of the focus on the topic during Free Chava didn't stay, although I do think that's true of sort of any big topic in the news. The nature of news is that, you know, it cycles, it continues onwards. And I think really just uh, a sense of people wanting to understand why this is still happening, what they can do to help. Not everyone is going to be a, a full-time Aguna activist, and you don't need to be, um, but figuring out ways to engage and be involved, and also thinking about what in some ways, the ultimate question in this area is how do we create meaningful, lasting change in a way that's also realistic to the politics and the cultural landscape that we're living in right now? And I think that is uh, always something that you see debated and that we really continue to see a lot of conversation around. Right. I think that one of the things that I mean, I had certainly never heard of this before Free Chava, and I actually attended one. When you talk about like rallies, there were people yelling outside get refusers houses, which I cannot overstate how deeply uncomfortable that makes me on a not because they're not because I agree with what they're doing by by no stretch at all. Like, yes, somebody should be standing outside their house yelling with a bullhorn. But there's something about I don't I can't. I don't know. Maybe it's just because I'm such a private person. But there's something about like the fact that we had to stand outside somebody's house and yell is so upsetting. And I actually went to one rally. It was outside, um, oh, some quack based in, in Muncie. I forget what his name yes. is. Yeah, we, we won't give him airtime. Um, but I went to that one because I felt like, well, it happened to be that a bunch of the first original rallies happened during my very, very busy, busy season. So there was no way that I could go. And then this one was a little bit later and I was like, damn it, my excuse is over. I'm like, <laughs> I'm going. And I actually, I went with my husband because I didn't know what to expect. And I was like, I am terrified and you need to come. And it was just very, like the whole experience was very out of body. And up until Free Chava, I had never, had that ever happened before that there were these rallies outside people's houses? You, We did have rallies and that's something Ora has been doing for some time, not necessarily of that scale. And I think it really was a lot of the support was more within the 
modern Orthodox community. And I think what Free Chava did is it kind of broke out and you saw Sephardi activists and more yeshivish people and just, a, I think, a wider range of different denominations. Of course, Orthodoxy is not, you know, one size fits all. There's lots of different styles. And so you saw different types of Orthodox Jews getting involved. What I will say about rallying, though, it is deeply uncomfortable. I have never liked rallies, and I still don't, and I lead them on a full horn, mm -hmm. um, and it is not something I enjoy doing, and I do think the way I think about it is that as opposed to thinking about public shaming and the sort of personal attack that's part of shaming, that it's really more accountability, that at a certain point you have to hold people accountable. And in this particular instance, in the United States, in the legal system that we're in, you don't have a ton of ways to do that. But one way we really approach this at ORA is that, first of all, it's a last resort. So if you see us standing on a sidewalk with signs, you know, first of all, that, you know, we don't want to be there. Um, and second of all, that we've tried everything else and nothing else worked. And also we really keep our rallies very focused in that we're not making personal attacks. We're focused on the specific choice to not give a get and encouraging them to make a different choice. I do What's think the though, designation that, there. Yes. What's like, cause isn't it a personal attack to say you, you terrible person, you haven't given a get, or is it just, or is it not you terrible person? And that's, implied by judging people like me like how what's what's the what's the nuance there yes it's a fine line i would say the way it comes out practically is that we will not emphasize any other issue besides the end so they could be 20 years behind on child support they could have physically assaulted their partner there could be lots of say dirt that you could air in the course of a rally that you could talk about in your speeches and we don't do any of that we really focus specifically on these people have been separated for X years. So-and-so has been waiting for a get for, you know, four years. You need to give a get, do the right thing. And we don't go into any other areas that where there might be an example of poor character because the goal is not a total character assassination. And of course it feels personal. If someone's standing outside your house with a bullhorn, that's not going to not feel personal, but we really try to kind of draw that line where it's focused specifically on the get. And we also, we never want to pressure so much that the person feels like they can never re-enter the community again. So there's a real delicate balance where we want the get refuser to feel like there's an incentive to give the get and they can be part of the community once again, as opposed to it's over, I'll never be part of the community. And so I might as well just dig my heels in and enjoy the control that I have. Meaning like everybody knows what a terrible person I am. They will never forgive me. So what's the point in giving it? Exactly. There's a real yin yang with advocacy because of course you want to push and you want to pressure and you want to hold people accountable. But also if you push too hard, too fast, you run the risk of kind of radicalizing the person. And now they feel like, well, my old life is, is over. I'm never going back there. So I might as well embrace this new identity. And you don't want them to cross over into that territory. Yeah, I, I hear that. I do not envy your job. That sounds very stressful. Um, there is, I want to, I want to kind of use a specific case as an example to kind of talk through how this process works. Um, we're recording this pretty close to when it'll be released. Um, today, when you're listening to this, is Thomas Esther, which is a day that is universally recognized as a day for Agunot, uh, because Esther herself was an Aguna. In the, like, it's so funny because there's the traditional biblical sense of the word Aguna, which my great grandmother was actually an Aguna for two and a half years because she got married right before World War II. And so she actually, she got, um, she, her family came um, here when she was 16 in 1928, and then in 1938, she went back to Poland to get married because in New York, it was very rare to find a from person, um, and she was also an American citizen. So there were many people back in Pshevas who would have loved to have married an American citizen, including the rabbi's son, um, which is how she ended up marrying the rabbi's son there. And then she, he stayed back in Poland because there was paperwork that needed to be done, and she went back to New York to 
you know, start filling out the paperwork. 1938 was not a great time to be in any place in Poland. Um, the war wow. broke out and she didn't know if he was alive or dead for, I believe, two or three years. And that is the traditional translation of an Aguna. It was someone whose husband had gone off to war. They don't know what happened to him. What do we do with this woman? Um, the the modern sense of someone who is in a, this dead marriage of with a get refuser is really only a it's a modern thing. It's not something that used to happen because we were in these much more insular communities and public shaming works, people, um, especially if you're in a situation where like if you're in the shtetl, then being a part of the community is literally a matter of survival. It's it's life and death. Um, but if I, I digress. You have this case now where, you know, uh, like I was saying, Esther is was an aguna in the biblical sense of the word. And so Tanis Esther is generally recognized um, as, you know, a day for agunot. And you're you're right now working on this case in Bergen County. Um, Bergen County, for anyone who doesn't know, is Teaneck. It's North Jersey. Um, talk to me. I, I want to use this case as an example, because like there's a part of me that wonders how does something go so far off the rails that we're screaming outside of somebody's house? So t talk to me through what happens in, you know, let's use this case. What's going on? Sure. So essentially, this is a case where you've had a resolution of the issues and one party is really not happy with where things are landing up. When you say and resolution of the issues, you mean that they were in civil court? Yes, exactly. I mean, they've been in beaten, they've been in civil court, there's a lot of back and forth. But typically in a divorce, there's sort of two main things that have to get figured out. And of course, they're not all going to apply in every situation. But the big things are property and kids, who's going to get what, who's going to have to pay who in support, and then where are the kids going to be, who's going to make decisions for the kids. Those are kind of the big issues. And what sometimes happens in get refusal, get refusal can be motivated by a couple of different things. But what we see often is that someone is looking for a specific result in those areas. They want a certain property division or a certain, you know, parenting arrangement. And then if they see they might not get it or if they haven't gotten it, they will sometimes use the get as leverage to basically get the results that they wanted to have. So they might say, well, if you want your get, I want to reopen everything that's already been decided by the courts or that's already been decided by the beast and I, by the religious courts. I want to start over. And what that really comes down to, as you said earlier about get refusal and domestic abuse, that it's really that control piece, that it's wanting sort of a control over the process. And the way we frame it is that, you know, in an ideal world, a husband and wife, a former husband and wife, come together, whether it's with a mediator on their own, they reach an agreement that everyone can live with. And certainly when there are kids involved, that's ideal. But when we can't get that, the next best option is that a neutral third party makes a decision. And whether that should be the court, the religious court, there are a lot of specific elements that go into which one makes sense in a particular case, but you want a neutral third party. And what can happen in get refusal cases is that the get refuser will sort of use the get as an opportunity to overdo whatever that neutral third party might otherwise say to say, you know, step aside, neutral third party, I'm going to decide what this divorce is going to look like. And if you want your freedom, you're going to work with me. Okay. What is the line between a get refuser and a tough negotiator? Meaning like I'm in business, I have negotiated contracts and there are definitely times when I am negotiating a contract where I have said, this is what I need. And if you can't meet these requirements, I will walk away from this deal. I will, uh, you know, this is, these are the conditions under which we will work together. It's your choice. Yes or no how is this different if i'm negotiating right and in and a in a lot of ways a divorce is a monetary situation there could be potentially a lot of money involved at what point do i go from being a tough negotiator to a get refuser that's a great question and i'm so glad you asked because i think a lot of people struggle with this divorce is kind of a dirty business you know and everyone's sort of pulling out the cards in their deck and they're using them to negotiate and so people can really struggle with 
well, isn't this just part of divorce and part of negotiation? And you could look at it that way. And there are definitely people in the world who see it from that perspective. But the work that we're doing at ORA is really sort of changing the cultural perception of using that. And here's why I would say it's different. I think number one, what is unique about a get is the potential for how long it can go. If you are involved in a nasty civil divorce and it's taking you a really long time, it is going to be stressful. It's going to cost you money. But 20 years down the line, you will have that divorce with or without the presence of the other person. It's a pain, but a court can move forward without them if they need to. When it comes to the get, a get can potentially go on indefinitely. We have a case on our roster at ORA where the couple separated in 1974. And that is older than I am. Um, I guess I'm aging myself here, but um, the case is significantly older than I am. Wow. Yes, and if you take that in, it kind of, it's, it's really almost shocking. And so the possibility for a get to go on indefinitely, I think, makes it really different than other sort of negotiations. But why can it go on indefinitely? Just because the 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 religious courts don't have the authority that uh, that a civil court does to move on without somebody else to like move yeah, on so without it, one of the parties. Yeah. So essentially, there's a structural difference between divorce in the civil system and the Jewish system. In the civil system, divorce comes from the state. So in a wedding ceremony, they'll say, you know, by the power vested in me by the state of New York, I now pronounce you man and wife. So everything's coming from the state. That's why marriage equality is a thing. The state has to give you permission to marry. And when you want a divorce, you apply to the state for permission to divorce. So it's this top-down structure, which means that because it's coming from the state, the state can move on without you. When it comes to Jewish marriage, it's really contractually based. So it's a, a husband and a wife sort of reaching an agreement that we want to live together as husband and wife. We want this type of relationship. And the rabbi facilitates that agreement, but the rabbi doesn't marry you in this top-down way, in the way that you have in the civil system. So you need a contract to create the marriage and a contract to end the marriage. And while there are in theory tools in Jewish law to resolve a marriage without that second contract, they're very controversial and they're not widely used. And so practically, you really need the other party's participation in almost all situations. And that makes it really fundamentally different than what's happening in court, because a court, again, can and will move on if they need to, even if the other person falls off the face of the earth and stops showing up. So there's a a potential really long-term aspect to the get. And I think because of that, these 1974 cases are very uncommon, but because people know they exist, they inspire a lot of fear. So when it comes to negotiating, you have this sort of a almost cloud over the negotiation where one person knows, especially again, if they're coming out of an abusive situation, they know that the get could really be an issue. They know that they could be that person who becomes the next free Chava or the next case that's been going on for 30 years. And they're afraid of that. So they may be more motivated to take a deal that really is to their disadvantage. That's much less than what they would get from a neutral third party because there's so much fear around it. So I think the longevity of the get makes it really a different kind of tactic. Another thing we really believe in at ORA is that one of the powers that we have as a community is to decide what we're okay with and what we aren't. And all societies do that. You could have a society where everyone kills each other and that's okay. And there are societies that function that way. Or you can say, nope, that's beyond the pale. So we get to decide where the lines are. We get to decide what behavior is beyond the pale and what isn't. And so the cultural piece is huge here because 
if we don't define get refusal as something that's never okay, then a whole lot of people are going to do it. And you are going to have this as a common part of negotiations. And when divorces are negotiated in this way with get extortion kind of over the proceedings, you end up with bad results. And of course, the most voiceless participants in a divorce are the children. And so especially for kids, we want to make sure that again, if mom and dad can't agree, we get a neutral third party. We don't want children's futures being determined by extortion because they can end up in scenarios that are not safe for them, that really don't make sense and that don't meet their needs. Right. And when it comes to this community acceptance piece, this is where I think it's so it's so tricky because speaking as like a regular lay member of a, you know, of the Orthodox community, of the Jewish community, there is a certain, you know, I can't go and investigate every single case. So I think that on a global level, it's easy to say, yeah, get refusal is bad. But when you think of specific cases, particularly if you know people involved and when it's on a community by community basis, you're, you're, you know, you're going to know people involved. It's, it's difficult to think, I don't know, is she being reasonable? Is he being reasonable? Is there something more here? Is he being branded a get refuser when really she won't ever let him see the kids or something like that? Like, how do we as a community determine where that line is? Like I said, what is that space between get refuser and not even tough negotiator, but just someone trying to do the best for themselves or maybe for their kids or maybe not? How do we determine if someone is just being selfish or if they're really trying to hurt their like and they're really trying to hurt their kids or their ex or whoever and someone who's just caught up in like you said the messy business of divorce right i'm so glad you asked you can't see me nodding but i'm nodding all <laughs> along because I, I think this is a real struggle for people and i'll share as well i'm in the community i've known people who ended up on either side of this process and it's hard in practice so a couple of things i'll say in terms of the question how do you know the truth is you don't. And, and I think that's a really important thing to realize. One thing I say a lot at ORAP is that reasonable is in the eyes of the beholder. Every single person I speak to has a perfectly reasonable offer on the table. And whether that offer is like something every court in the entire known world would overturn or not, to them it's reasonable. And the other piece is that these cases are complex. And when we're not the judge and we're not the jury and we're not sitting there with piles of evidence, the answer is we really don't know. Um, and that's a hard thing. Here's what I would say, though. There is a widespread misconception in the Jewish community that women get everything they want in court. And so many people will say, well, if women get everything they want in court, then men have the get, it evens out, right? She has the upper hand here, he has the upper hand there. Now we're even. And so I, mean I, I wish even? I could... Meaning like he can use the, the that fact that he has leverage. everyone has a negotiating tool. That right, meaning she like can she negotiate. can, meaning saying that like he has an advantage, let's say in Jewish court and she has this advantage in civil court. So they will kind of meet in the middle because they can each use this leverage. Exactly. Okay that in sort of an adversarial process, you have sort of a, a weight on each side. And many people wonder this. And so the first thing I have to say is that women do not get everything they want in court. That is not true as of 2023, certainly in any of the states where I have researched this and been involved in cases. States are increasingly defaulting to joint custody, meaning that they're expecting that kids are going to spend extensive periods of time with each parent, which as long as those are healthy parents is good for the kids and is great. So there's an imagined advantage in court that really doesn't exist that's based on very outdated understandings of how the court system works. So people will say, well, American law requires that little kids go with the parents. That doctrine was overturned, you know, probably 50, 60 years ago. These are not sort of active elements. Um, and while, you know, again, statistically, mothers do sometimes end up with more parenting time, mothers also typically do more childcare work, if you look at broad statistics. And so often you have people's lives set up in a way where moms are doing more childcare work and that continues afterwards, but it's usually fairly evenly divided. When you say childcare so, work, you mean pre-divorce? 
Pre-divorce, exactly. That think about it this way: How many couples do you know where the wife is a neurosurgeon and the husband is an outpatient nurse? There are some, but you are going to see it more commonly flipped, and that means that that slight imbalance is going to continue into divorce. But you can plot out the schedules, and typically for out of school time kids time is being split pretty evenly and so again there's sort of this misconception that there's an advantage that's really not correct and i would say for people who feel strongly that nope that imbalance is there or it's there in my state then advocate for change in your legal community um, we advocate for change on get refusal anyone can go advocate for change on any topic that they want to but bringing the get into that process really doesn't work and the challenge is that if we're going to say, well, who's being reasonable, we're not in a position to decide that. I do this all day, and I don't consider myself in a position to decide that because I don't have the power to subpoena witnesses and look at phone records and read all of their text messages. That's something that only a court can really access. And so the position that we take is that of course people are complicated, and of course people do lots of sometimes good and mostly bad things to each other in divorce and that people are gray they're not black and white but that when it comes to the specific decision to withhold a get when you have been required by a religious court to issue one that decision is black and white and what's important for communities to realize is that when, say, organizations like ORA that have a vetting process are going public on a case, that means that this person is not willing to give an unconditional get, and we can hold that person accountable for that specific choice without needing to enter into the rights and wrongs of all the other elements. Because again, if mom and dad can't agree, the next best thing is a neutral third party. And I'm not that neutral third party. And so I'm not going to decide where the kids should be on you know, Hanukkah break. Someone else can decide that. But when it comes to the get, we should all feel confident that if get refusal is happening, we can and must hold the individual accountable for that specific decision without needing to pass judgment on their character, on the other person's character, on whose deal is good and whose deal is bad, because we don't have the information we would need to even answer that question if we wanted to. So it's the idea of not tolerating any form of get refusal, no matter what the specifics of the case are, because we can't ever really know what happens inside somebody's house. There's only two people who really know what happened. And you're going to and you're not going to get an unbiased story from either of them. So because we can't know the truth, it's about accepting that we we can't know the truth. We don't know exactly what happened. And that doesn't matter because this is not something as a community that we will tolerate. Yes. And I will say I've had conversations with get refusers where they will say, what if I give this get now and I don't get what I want or I'm not happy with the results or I feel like there was an injustice against me? And I'll tell them that could totally happen. I'm not going to lie to you. You could end up giving the get and then coming out of this process feeling like, oh, I, I could have gotten more or I didn't have enough of this, et cetera. But ultimately, you will know that in one of the most difficult moments of your life, you did the right thing. And that is what we are called to do as Jewish people, we are obligated to do the right thing, to make the choice that is just, and that has never come with a guarantee that everything else is going to be, you know, rainbows and unicorns, but that's not what this is about. It's not really a transactional piece. This is something that you are supposed to do if the marriage is over, you're supposed to give the get, you are not supposed to abuse your spouse, and that's that's all that comes with. And one thing I'll say sometimes facetiously, but you know, it is now a almost midday. I have yet to murder anybody. No one's gonna bring me an Amazon gift card to thank me. We expect people to follow social rules and to not do things that are considered abuses of other people. And the expectation that there should be some sort of a reward or a guarantee in exchange for doing that sort of basic human decency is, I think, a, a warped expectation. And there's a lot of work that we have to do as a community to correct that, that you, your marriage is over. 
get should be given. That doesn't mean that you're guaranteed a certain result, but that's not how that is really supposed to work. Okay. So playing devil's advocate here for a second, the marriage is over. We haven't lived together for, I don't know, let's say a year. We, we haven't lived together for a year. There's no chance of reconciliation. We've gone to all the therapy. We've done all the Shalom bias work. This is not happening. If I give the get, and then I get a, a deal that, that I don't like, you know, I give the, I do the right thing. I give the get, you know, when, when it has become clear that this is not going, going back. And then we start negotiating and then we start, you know, ironing out all of the details and then, and, and, so, and I am, I, I'm speaking as a, as a man, but we do know, I, I feel like we should say this. We do know that there are cases where the woman refuses to accept it. Um, rare, sure. but it does happen. Um, so speaking as a man for a second, I, give the get, and then we iron out all the details, and I am stuck with an exorbitant amount of child support that I believe is unreasonable. My options after that point, like I have to go to civil court then, I guess, right? Like are, it, it can be argued from a butt-headed perspective that yes, even though it is the right thing to do, that I am putting myself at a disadvantage by doing that. Because even though it shouldn't be that way, in a lot of ways, it is my best bargaining chip because if she can't get that get, then she has to keep talking to me. And maybe I don't want to accept that this marriage is fully over. So let's keep her talking to me, you know, or, you know, maybe there's that kind of warped perspective here, but can it, can't it be argued that by giving the get right away, you are putting, are you putting him at a disadvantage or are you putting everybody on the same footing? I'm thinking out loud here. I'm not, what, what's your, what are your thoughts on that? So a few things. First of all, I would overall say you're putting everyone on the same footing. And that's, of course, keeping in mind that there are so many factors that go into divorce unevenness. I would argue that the biggest factor is who has money and who doesn't, because the representation that you're able to access is such a game changer in divorce. But I would say two things. Number one, I think a lot of people do naturally think that way, and that's why we need a clear social boundary. Because in the moment of a divorce, many people feel anxious, they feel pushed against a wall, it's a scary time, and they might feel a real instinct that I have to keep this get to protect myself. So I, I understand sort of the emotional process that might be behind that, And that's partly why I think it's so important that as communities, we push back. Because if we leave people to their own devices, they will do this because it's scary and it feels like a protection. What I will tell people though, and what I've told many get refusers is that ultimately this actually doesn't work. And here's why, divorces can range from higher conflict to lower conflict. Once you are in a higher conflict territory, that means a couple of things. First of all, it means that you will spend hundreds of thousands of dollars getting divorced. So whatever money you had, you're not going to have very much of it at the end. So there's nothing left to split up. Exactly. Right. Because everything, your attorney's children will go to a very nice college and Mm -hmm. uh, you will have a hard time paying your rent. And so that's number one. And number two, when a divorce is really explosive, what you end up with is a custody arrangement. And I'm using custody as an example because that's often what people are concerned about. You end up with a custody arrangement that is very rigid and you there's no flexibility. If I want to switch nights because I have a family wedding and it would be so nice if my kids came, we're all in court on Monday. It just doesn't work. And so what people end up with is actually less time with their kids because the schedule they have is so restrictive that they don't have the ability to adjust the schedule as they schedules change. You can have a whole custody range worked up and then someone stands up for gymnastics and it's all over. So you actually really need an ability to work together and be flexible in order to allow the custody arrangement to naturally modify as circumstances change. What would happen in a low conflict situation? What'd you say? What would happen in a low conflict situation? Let's say, you know, I have that family wedding. I would just call up my ex and say, can we just switch nights? And they would say, okay. Exactly. That sounds easier. You can communicate. There are, in high conflict divorces, you're generally only communicating through secure apps. You're not even texting each other. There's there's very little direct communication because it's too risky. Anytime you want to make a change, you're hiring an attorney to bring it to court. It is, it's, it's really, it comes with almost no flexibility. 
So if you want to see your kids as much as possible, the best way you can guarantee that is by having as workable a relationship as possible with your ex. And what happens is that when one person withholds the get, it creates this cycle of animosity. Like I had a situation once where mom and dad were living in different states. Dad was supposed to pick up the kids for Shabbos, for the Jewish Sabbath. And he got, he was running late at work and he said, I'm not going to make it in time for, you know, Shabbos. Can you meet me halfway and drive three hours with, you know, this, you know, group of five kids to bring the kids to me? And the mom said, I'm happy to do that if you give me a get. And he said, I can't believe you're bringing the get into this. And she said, well, I'm not going to drive three hours out of my way with no notice while you're holding me hostage on a get. And in the end, the kids didn't go for Shabbos and everyone was in court on Monday. And so get refusal really amplifies the level of conflict in the divorce. And what that ultimately means is that everyone ends up with less of what they want. There's less money in the bank. There's less time with your kids. I also happen to feel that you will never get closer to your kids by abusing their parents. That in the long term doesn't work out very well. And so people say they're doing this in order to get those things, but they're actually sabotaging the things that they want the most. And I think that when a person who's in the mud of the conflict, who's angry, who's anxious, might not be able to see that. But that's where friends and family and professionals need to come in and say, hey, like, let's think about the big picture here. Let's think about where you want to be in five years. And let's not make this divorce five times longer and five times more expensive and five times more contentious than it needs to be. Because that's really what get refusal accomplishes. That all makes perfect sense to me. So my theoretical male alter ego will not be a get refuser from here on out. But no, everything you're sharing. <laughs> right, exactly. Good to know, right? Um, every Everything that you're saying really, it really lines up and it makes sense. And it, it almost makes me think that, I mean, listen, if people would sit and think a little bit more, the world would be a very different place. But if you really think these things through from, you know, from A to Z, a lot of these things, like you're saying, the accomplished goals are just not there. And it, and it brings me back to this issue of abuse. In your experience, are cases of get ref do cases of get refusal exclusively occur in abusive situations? Because to me, it seems like this is such a clear bid for control. And when I had Dr. Shana Friedman on from Shalom Task Force, that was one of the key um, definitions that she gave was, do you feel like you have voice? Do you feel like you can voice, you know, speak a different opinion in this marriage and, and be safe to do so? And and this to me seems like it's such a it's such a clear bid for control. Does it ever happen that like a really nice, good, orthodox, nice yeshiva boy is like something about the divorce process? We have a Jekyll and Hyde situation and he was such a nice guy before and now we're dealing with a monster. Does that ever happen or like how how does that fit into all of this? Yeah, so I would say the typical profile is someone who has been abusive previously. And we've participated in some studies around this. And you really see, again, a vast majority of Agunot having experienced domestic abuse in the relationship and really serious forms of domestic abuse. So in one study, about almost 20% of Agunot had experienced strangulation in the relationship. And that's something that law enforcement actually looks at because it's a real risk factor for homicide. Um, so these are severely abusive relationships. That's the typical profile. I think the exceptions you see, I've had a couple of cases where someone had a brain injury and had a real sudden personality change as a result. Um, and I do think that there's if you think about it, if you imagine divorce as, say, like a big room and people are coming into the room, certain cases are with almost absolute certainty going to become high conflict. And I think abuse cases are really in that category because the whole thing's about control. So they're not giving it up now. This is the moment where they're most likely to hold on to it. Some situations, you know, are almost certainly going to be amicable. You have two wonderful, you know, lovely people who just uh, weren't on the same page and, you know, everything's great and they're going to resolve this really nicely. And I do think, though, you have a category of divorces that could go either way. And in those cases, it's the advice that they get early on that can really 
pitch them into one direction. So I think you do have some get refusers where, you know, do I, well, I say they were like the nicest, loveliest people in the world, maybe not, but that, you know, didn't necessarily have such obvious domestic abuse, but that chose to move the divorce in a more high conflict territory. And the other thing I'll say, and I think this is a very hard thing about abuse and also about get refusal, is that when you know someone, it can feel really different. And one of the challenges is that a lot of abusers in particular are really charming. Like they're not just as nice as everybody else. They're nicer, they're friendlier, they make you feel more comfortable. And so it can really mess with our heads when that person is also doing this thing. And one thing I've learned from sexual abuse activists, or I should say activists against sexual abuse, is that it is really critical to have policies in place before a situation comes up. Because if it's, you know, Mr. Jones, the science teacher that everyone loves, then everything's going to go off the rails. We're not necessarily going to take accusations seriously. So we have to have policies that are neutral, and then we have to be accountable to follow those policies, even when someone we know and love is in that situation. And it's the same with get refusal. I get so many messages saying, you know, I've always supported ORA, and I'm an activist against get refusal, but I know so-and-so, and so in this case, you're wrong. And... It, 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 I always find it fascinating because if you have a value that disappears into thin air the second someone you know is involved, that's not much of a value. What's really going on there is that there's a cognitive dissonance that this person that you know and like is also doing this thing. And so we resolve it by saying, well, that must not be true. But again, the 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 need for social values is that we put them in place in advance and we apply them to whoever comes up, however lovely they seem, however close we might be with them. And that's a, a very hard thing to do in practice, but it's so important. Because again, if you were an Aguna activist until someone you knew was a get refuser, there's a problem there. There's sort of a, a value misalignment that you really need to look at. Yeah. That doesn't sound fun, though. None of this is fun. No. You know, like the, the, that's the thing is that all of these I think that because like this issue specifically, it forces us to I don't want to use the word reconcile, but it forces us to face the flaws in the Basin system and the flaws in the people around us and the and the and the really ugly ways that people can get super nasty and what is happening behind closed doors in somebody else's marriage. And there's so many there's so many things that come up that, like you said, you can never really know the full answer to. I could, it's easier to pretend like this isn't happening. It is, it, it, I like there's a, there's a part of me that kind of wants to pretend it isn't happening because it's, because it's just so ugly. Like it's, there's nothing about this that is fun. And I think, and I also, you know, speaking as like a visibly orthodox person, we don't come out of this whole issue looking too hot. This is not like this is not a great PR situation. And and there is definitely a part of me that's like. I, I just I really want to pretend this isn't happening. Like we do so many good things like the Orthodox community has so much going for it. And yet here we are talking about these buttheads like that is that's just not a fun place to be. And like you said, it is deeply uncomfortable. But as a community, we have to we have to just not stand for it. Right. And it is hard. And we we joke all the time at Ora that we don't get invited to many cure of Shabbatones or sort of <laughs> Jewish outreach <laughs> programs, right? We're not like, welcome to Judaism. Like, let's tell you about this great thing we have. Um, but one thing I've learned, which can sometimes make it a little more bearable, is that the way domestic abuse works is that it kind of, it's the same thing at core, but it's almost like a like a teddy bear that's dressed up in different outfits. It sort of wears different clothing in the different communities it goes into. And so in the Orthodox community, this is one of the manifestations of abuse. But you see manifestations of abuse in every religious community. And I will tell you, any religion that has a religious divorce process, you're going to see it manipulated in domestic abuse situations. And the research really bears that out. So rather than seeing this as a something's wrong with us problem, which certainly on the systems front, on some of the uh, the significant flaws in the religious court system, uh, 
I don't want to let us off the hook too easily, but that this is a human problem and this is how domestic abuse works. Domestic abuse finds the things that really matter and it turns them into forms of abuse. And that's why it's so important to educate ourselves on this issue. And part of what we aim to do at ORA is really partner with communities that you don't have to do this by yourself, that we know it's scary and uncomfortable and we recognize it, but for whatever crazy reason, we've chosen to uh, kind of do this all day. And we're happy to bring you along with us in a way that's approachable and that feels manageable and not too overwhelming. And that's important to us because I, I do think it's it's a very hard issue to engage with. And so we we really work to make it approachable and empowering. And we speak to high school students and college students and we kind of adjust the content to sort of match the maturity level of the students and focus on an empowerment approach that we have a problem. Okay. And one more piece I'll say on that is that it's such a normal instinct to hide the problems, right? It's awkward and embarrassing. Let's sweep it under the rug. Let's pretend it, it's not happening. But if we want to think about what it means to be sort of a, a light unto the nations, anyone can can sweep their issues under the rug. That's that's easy. That's something everybody does. But if we can come up with a way to engage with our issues honestly, however painful that might be, that is the game changer. That is when we can, I think, truly be a light and truly be an example because a community that thinks that has no problems has more problems than anybody else. So let's face it head on. Let's work to change it. And let's believe enough in ourselves that we can do this better. We absolutely can. It won't be easy, but it's 100% possible. Amen. This has been such a one. I'm so glad that we did this. And I feel like in another two years, we're going to revisit again and we're going to see where, yes. you know, we're going to see where you're holding and, and what Aura has been up to. But if somebody wants to learn more about you or about Aura and what you do, where can they go? So you can find us on our website at www.getora.org. And all of our contact information is on there. You can also follow us on Instagram at Ora Agunote. And you can also follow me at Keshet Star. And I will say, I'll do a quick plug for this for anyone who might need support. We have a Jewish divorce helpline where people call us at all different stages of the process. And we just help figure out all this confusing court and beat in and resources you might need and all that stuff. So anyone's welcome to reach out. And that number is toll free. It's 1-844-OSF-LINE. OSF is our One Step Forward program. That's, you know, our helpline. And so if anyone needs support or know someone who does, feel free to reach out. And I'm going to put all of that information in the show notes, along with links to the entire four-part series that I did two years ago on domestic abuse and taking a look at that in the um, in the Orthodox community specifically. If you do think that you are involved in a domestic abuse situation, you should know that there are resources available to you, and please do reach out. Shalom Task Force is a great resource, and and they are there to help you. So please take advantage of those resources that exist in the community. Last question for you, Kesha. What does it mean to you to make an impact? What does it mean to me to make an impact? It means to, to stick it out that there are easy times and there are hard times, but I, I really believe in the power of continuity and I believe in staying with the problem. It's, you know, it's not always easy. It can be painful, it can be demoralizing, but when we stick with it and we don't give up on it, I think we can see real change. I love that. Thank you so much for coming on today, Keshet. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Keshet, her links are in the show notes. On the last episode, I spoke with Shoshana Keats-Jaskell about her work advocating for women and girls' visibility and orthodoxy. Listen to it wherever you're hearing this one. The Be Impactful podcast is a project of impact fashion clothing line I created because I believe that we are all deserving of the beautiful things life has to offer. See my modest designs that are available in sizes 2 through 24 by going to impactfashionnyc.com. Access all of that by swiping up on the cover art. There are currently 18 people listed by Ora Agunot as a recalcitrant party. View their names, photos, locations, and details of their cases by visiting getorward.org slash recalcitrant parties. The episode art was designed by Michelle Moses. Original music composed by Nisa Batman. This episode was produced and hosted by me, Griff Gidsquitz. Catch me on Instagram and Facebook at impact.fashion.myc. As always, here's to making an impact together. <laughs>